0: Hello and welcome to The Course in the Chaos. This is part three of a series I'm doing on infant baptism, a defense of infant baptism. In the first uh, episode, if you've been listening to this little intermission we're having in season two, in the first episode I discussed and proposed an idea of why so many evangelicals in kind of the United States just don't have a great grasp on the doctrine and practice of infant baptism, why people, why Reformed Protestants, for example, would baptize their children. In the second episode, I spent time... Uh, outlining some differences between the to two major paradigms of thought between dispensationalism and a covenantal theological approach and argued for the covenantal theological approach. And in this part, being the third part, I'm going to continue to extend to that and defend the biblical practice of of infant baptism. Um, having, again, having established that precedent for how we interpret the covenants of the Bible, uh, and I'm arguing for a covenantal framework, my aim here is, is, is to focus on the parallels between circumcision and baptism. And so much of the biblical weight for the argument of infant baptism depends on this proper framework and an understanding of Scripture. So anyone looking to close the case on a few proof texts, you know, where's an example of someone baptizing a child in the New Testament? Um, if you're doing that, you're not really looking for the case or, or why someone actually believes in infant baptism. And again, that idea of like it must be in the New Testament or I won't believe it—an exact example. That's not. That's not really how the practice is developed. It's it's developed as an extension of what was established and demonstrated in the Old Testament with the people of Israel in the covenantal sign of uh, baptism. And to that point, you know, the Bible is not really to be read in in a way of just comprehensive list of a very do this and don't do that. Although there are certainly some explicit and prescriptive uh, instructions in the Bible. Like we get a lot of that. But holistically, if we think about what the Bible is, it's a collection of 66 books inspired by God, written over thousands of years, and they form all together, they collectively form a special revelation of God, his character, his law, his plan and purpose for redemption. And as it's been said, you know, one of the number one rules for Hermeneutics, or Interpreting Scripture, is this idea that Scripture interprets Scripture. And it's this basis, it's this foundation, is how we begin to build a foundational and theological understanding for the doctrine and practice of infant baptism. So, to begin, let's, let's briefly consider the people of God in the Old Testament. And again, I start here because we have to understand the unique relationship between circumcision and baptism. We have to know the practice of circumcision, its function for the people in the Old Testament pre-Christ times, if we're going to understand the practice of baptism for us today. So whenever we speak of the Old Testament Israel, uh, it's important to remember that we do so often in a cultural and sometimes, if not uh, more often, in a nationalistic sense. That is to say, we fundamentally recognize them as a visible entity, not a spiritual entity, but a physical entity, a body of people. And even today, we think we continue to do that. We continue to think of Israel in a more corporal way. And circumcision was the rite that made this possible. When it was given, it was the visible sign of the covenant for the people of God in the old covenant. And to be an Israelite essentially meant that every male in the household was to be circumcised. And for the Israelites, there there was a tremendous amount of value and uh, design associated with the sign of circumcision. And some evangelicals, I think, can quickly kind of look past this. Writing off circumcision as it's something old, it's something gone. It's largely unimportant to the modern Christian life. However, the Apostle Paul does not shy away from stressing the value of circumcision for the people of God. Listen to what he says in Romans 3.1. He writes, What advantage has the Jew... Or, what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. See, Paul understood that the role and purpose of circumcision was paramount in a right understanding of ecclesiology. And he's reminding us that built within the practice of circumcision is the institution of the covenant with Abraham. And I would go as far as to say that the two, the old covenant and circumcision, are are maybe almost synonymous. But pay pay careful attention to to some some dialogue here that we find in Genesis 17 between Abraham and God. This is Genesis 17 verses 9 through 14. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male... Who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from my people. He has broken my covenant. And notice, I tried to emphasize it there just to point out for for kind of a voice inflection, but notice that God said, This is my covenant when establishing the the practice of circumcision. So, in a sense, the Abrahamic covenant was materialized in the practice of circumcision. And then notice that at the end of that, that verse text there, section of scripture, God then ends that statement to Abraham with some very severe warnings about those who are not circumcised. He says they'll be cut off from the people of God. So clearly, God took the perpetual practice of circumcision very seriously. He wanted it to be going for, the, for his people and the, the established people of Israel. And at one point, if you look in Exodus 4, there's a point where God actually almost killed Moses for not circumcising his children. There was a great threat there. So Exodus 4.24, you can go go read that little section of scripture. It's very fascinating. But since the institution of circumcision, back in the with, with Abraham, the Israelites began, then began to broke up and they, they diversed in many different groups and sects, such as the Sadducees, the Pharisees, so on and so forth, with with varying and various different ideas and theologies among them. There was a ton of disagreements among the Israelites. Yet there was one belief and one practice that always kept them united. It was uh, the rite of circumcision. It was tantamount with their national identity and their relationship with God. And because of its significance, there was, as you might imagine, an incredible amount of pride and honor built into that tradition. And many Jews in the New Testament saw circumcision as a parallel to righteousness, and in fact, Paul spent a great deal of time tearing down these misconceptions about the true source of true source of righteousness. Uh, there's some of that in Galatians. You know, the large, large portions of Galatians are written about that. And, and using imagery, then to, f- to familiar with the Jews and others in the time, he writes, and this is in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul wrote that a, that a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. Romans 2, 28 and 29. And although many Jews uh, miscalculated the soteriological theme of circumcision, Paul does not count circumcision as altogether vain and worthless. You see, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that entitled the Israelites to God's law and Revelation. And the Apostle Paul says that through circumcision, the Jews were, Romans 3.1, entrusted with the oracles of God. Don't miss that. It was through the practice of circumcision that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And here, he certainly means that the people of God and all the promises contained within, and that is more specifically, I think in Romans 9, we get some clarification on what he means by the oracles of God. Romans 9.4, Paul points out that, the people of God were entrusted with, quote, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So circumcision was the sign that visibly organized this reality in an ecclesiological way, right, for the people of God in a visible church way. It was a sign was given to all the male children as well as the slaves, and thus the notability of the covenantal household was established, and it was, and is still, necessary that the people of God be identifiable with a visible sign. We still, and, and most, most Christians would agree, with the fact, all Christians would agree with this, that there is a sign of the covenant given to the people of God. Where differentiations come between, say, Baptists and Presbyterians, myself being a Presbyterian, is that sign of the covenant then to be extended to children and households? Or as a Baptist would say, just those who profess faith? That's that's the difference, you know, the difference here. But uh, and that's kind of the point I'll make is that as we understand how circumcision was applied, the mirror of that is to be true in the New Testament, right. So having established in some of the weightier ecclesiastical considerations for circumcision, I, I want to follow along Paul's logic in Romans 9. Remember, he, he quotes that thing. He says, The people of God were entrusted with the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, and the promises. Um, and Paul, as he continues in Romans 9, he addresses the need for the spiritual reality to accompany the outward sign. And Paul, drawing distinction between the visible church and invisible church, just a few, few verses later, clarifies that Romans 9, 6, not all Israel is Israel. And, you know, it's no secret out there that there were many Jews who were unfaithful hence the very crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus, with the visible people of God, there has always been some true inward faith for some, a remnant, and then some without. And we can understand then that the economy of the church in the Old Covenant was pretty similar to what we have today. Not every person who has been baptized and attend church on Sunday has been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Yet the visible church contains both. It has those who are redeemed, and those who are just there, right? Uh, the visible church has both both elements. Kind of I'll call it a two-tier covenantal structure. And I'll add that this is by design. It is by design. This is the the practice and the identity that God set and the, the economy, I should say, that God set up in the Old Testament. And it's impossible, because it's impossible for man to know the hearts of another man. Any attempt to perfectly align the invisible church with the visible to make these two synonymous, it'll fail. That that's in I would say that's an eschatological approach. right? that's only going to happen when Christ returns and the church is made completely whole. Only the Lord knows the hearts of men, and thus I contend that 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 would be a main point of contention between traditional covenantal theologians like myself and covenantal Reformed Baptist. And I'll, I'll touch a little bit more on that. Why I think that's the case in in uh, article. I'm sorry. In uh, in episode four, uh, I'll, I'll break that down just a little bit more. But again. As I mentioned out from the outset, my goal here is not to really compare Reformed baptism or Reformed Baptist with covenantal uh, uh, Presbyterian views. It's not really the point here. Just trying to kind of explain where the Presbyterian or the, the infant baptism views come from. So moving on, uh, it, it's, it's critical. I say it's critical to establish that God, and this is a big point, that God never does away with the practice and establishment of the invisible church, existing within inside the visible entity. That basic structure between the old and the new is the same. And so are the general benefits, the oracles of God, for the old and the new. It mirrors. So with the covenantal sign visibly applied, we uphold the establishment and the organizational benefits of the visible church. That is, again, Romans 9, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. That's true for the church. That was true for Israel, and it is true for the church today. Within the church, these are the things we have. We have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the worship, and the promises. The oracles of God are carried and upheld in the church. So I, I hope maybe, maybe you're beginning to appreciate and see some of the ecclesial, excuse me, <laughs> ecclesiastical value and importance of the covenant sign for God's people. What was weighty and true for the Israelites in the Old Testament is even more so for Christians today because we have the revealed Savior. We have uh, Christ has come and fulfilled the law, right? So it's even more true. It's even better. It's expanded. It's better. But aside from the ecclesiastical value mentioned above, I want to quote John Murray here. And John Murray, a great theologian, points out, and he, he has a book called Christian, uh, Christian Baptism, which is excellent if you're looking for more of a deep dive on the topic. But he points out that, quote, circumcision signified fundamentally— the removal of defilement and/or uncleanliness to the end of the participation of the covenant blessings. And um, he cites several verses here. You can go look these up: Exodus 6:12 and 30, Leviticus 19:23, 26 and 41, Deuteronomy 10:16, uh, chapter 30, verse 6, uh, Jeremiah 4:4, 4, 4. Jeremiah 6:10, and 9:25. So, and I'll read his quote again: circumcision signified fundamentally the removal of defilement or uncleanliness to the end of participation in the covenant blessings. And Murray goes on to write that circum- quote, circumcision was a seal of righteousness of, excuse me, of the faith that Abraham had while he was yet uncircumcised, Romans 4.11. And these two things, the, the one, the, the fact that the removal of defilement or purification signifies, and then the other, the imputation of the righteousness of faith, It will be readily seen are not contradictory, but rather mutually complementary. It is well for us, Marie continues, to pause and confront ourselves with this fact that, by divine appointment and express command, the sign and seal of spiritual realities, realities that could only be applied to men through the gracious operations of the Spirit of God, was administered to infants. Great, great quote. Re- really excellent point by by Murray. And it's due, due to the continuity of the covenants, that we can understand that the same general function applies to Christians. We are the children of Abraham. We are the heirs to the same covenantal promises. Christians are the heirs to the promises given to Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David. And they are fulfilled and made perfectly whole in Christ. And I also think it's important to draw quick, quick attention to the fact that The order of the covenant sign giving and faith are interchangeable. Paul explains in Romans 4, quote, that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And in what context was it credited? Was it after his circumcision or before? Paul says it was not after but before, Romans 4, verses 9 through 10. Yet we know that the covenant sign circumcision from then on is given to infants. So You can see there's not a direct correlation in the Old Testament, between, at least in the order, Faith, covenant sign, covenant sign, faith. Depending on the context, they change. Abraham had faith first, received the covenant sign. But for all the children in the nation after him, the covenant sign came before faith. So in baptizing the infants of Christians, we then visibly proclaim to the world, much like what Israel did, that this child is set apart and will be brought up in the theological and cultural teaching of the church. We are passing on the law of Christ to the next generation in a corporal sense, We do not believe that infant baptism saves, not at all, but we do recognize that upon receiving the the sign, the child is marked with the covenant sign of grace. He's set apart. And as it relates to salvation, the baptized infant still needs to make that profession of faith to follow Christ. I do not argue that. Uh, The waters of infant baptism do not save. However, the hope, the true hope is that the mark of baptism will be a perpetual call to faith and repentance. Circumcision of the heart. Much like in the Old Testament, a Jew, again, would, would recognize the practice of circumcision. It was a constant reminder of who they were, that they are set apart for God's purpose. They could look back at that and always see it. And for the Christian, the baptism is the same thing. A Christian, someone who grows up, is baptized early on, and then grows up, can always look back to that mark of baptism to say, I am set apart, I belong to God, and therefore I must pursue God, is a call a continual call to faith and repentance. Uh, To go back to John Murray, he explains, quote, It so happens that circumcision signified basically the same thing as baptism, that baptism signifies purification from the defilement of sin by the regeneration of the Spirit and purification from the guilt of sin by the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of faith, appears on the very face of the New Testament. That we have found already, he continues, uh, that we have found already is the real meaning of circumcision. There is therefore a basic identity of meaning and signification. Circumcision bearing the same basic meaning as baptism was administered for infants who were born in the covenant relation and privilege flowing from the covenant made with Abraham. That's a lot there. So if you want to go back and listen to that again. It's, a, it's kind of a, a wordy quote, but it's it's an excellent point. And it's extraordinarily compelling when you consider Peter's words at Pentecost and the establishment of the sign of the new covenant. Peter commands, it's a very famous text, uh, Acts 2.38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. In this incredible moment, Peter is ushering in a new, more expansive, and better covenantal sign to be given to the visible people of God. And it's unsurprising then that Peter includes children in the promise. And this is a huge point. This is a really, really big point. For that practice of including children in, in, the, in the visible people, keeping them in the covenantal people of God, that has been the practice of God's people for thousands of years, thousands and thousands of years, from the very beginning God sustain the significance of the familial unit, the family unit. And Peter doesn't change things. It would require uh, quite, the, uh, quite a change, right? And this is where the arguments of silence comes. So many people say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about infant baptism. It's silent on the issue. Well, that silence, I actually think, is a pretty strong argument because you have thousands of years of practice of the covenantal sign being given to children, So for that to be changed, it would need to be pretty explicit in the New Testament. Rather being explicit, saying, stop this, stop this, stop this. Peter says, this promise is for you and your children. He includes children. So the question then becomes, as it relates to the study, what about this generation's children, right? And this is kind of where we're maybe, again, the argument of silence where we see something in the New Testament, but what happens next? So after repentance, is the covenant sign then given to children? We have first century Christians. Personally, as I stated, I do think that Peter makes it very clear in this text where he includes children. He does not feel that need to elaborate that he's speaking to the Israelites uh, because it, he's speaking to people who, have, again, have been giving the covenant sign to children for thousands of years. And that really is a really compelling point. That argument of silence is is very loud, right? It's very loud because it would take a drastic change in God's plan of redemption to come and announce something completely different. Um, so, let me uh, let me go back to John Murray one more time, and I'll kind of do this in closing. I think this is a great quote, and his co- he gives some commentary here on the perpetual nature of the covenant sign, um, and I think it summarizes the whole issue well. So again, this is John Murray. I'll quote him one more time. This is out of his book, uh, Christian Baptism. He says, It cannot be stressed too much stressed that the New Testament economy is the elaboration and development of the Abrahamic covenant. If infants are excluded now, it must be understood that this change implies a complete reversal or repeal of the earlier divinely instituted practice. And so we must very seriously ask, do we find either in either testament any hint of such a reversal? More particularly, does the New Testament revoke so expressly taught and authorized a principle as the inclusion of infants in the covenant sign and seal? as a practice followed in the divine divine administration of the covenant of grace for some 2,000 years been discontinued. He continues, When we examine our New Testament, we can find no such evidence. But in the view view of basic identity of meaning in circumcision and baptism, in the view of the unity and continuity of the covenant in terms of which this covenant sign was given, we can say with confidence that the evidence of repeal is mandatory if the practice or principle is to be discontinued. And so, in the absence of repeal, and in the presence of evidence for continuance, continuance excuse me, we can conclude that the administration of the sign to the infant seed of believers has perpetual divine warrant and authority. Again, great summary of the, of the text. He's basically saying, and this kind of summarizes the argument, because circumcision was established the way it was, the sign was given to whom it was, and it established this corporal uh, reality for the people of Israel. Because that was never changed, and it was such a divinely instituted practice, we have no reason to assume that it's been stopped. And he and and I, I like Murray's wording here. Uh, he says a re- would be evidence of a repeal would be mandatory if we we're to change that because it is so. Um, uh, so substantially validated and proven within the covenantal people of God in the Old Testament and how that follows through. And the fact that Peter says this promise is for you and your children. Like we see that continuation and the continuity of the old into the new. And that's really where we begin to see the practice for infant baptism. Uh, so I hope, I hope that brings some clarity to where it comes from. The, the, again, the argument is not to find a, uh, a, uh, an example proof text that says, do this, the argument, the weight of the argument, the burden of the argument is on the other side to say, this is where it stopped. And that, that is much, much of the argument for practice of infant baptism. Now in the final episode um, in part four, which will be next, I'm going to dig in a little bit deeper on the the structure of the covenant. And I think it's helpful. Uh, For example, for me personally, as I was working through this many years ago, I'll run through some texts that really begin to solidify that this two tier covenantal structure does exist in the new Testament. Because if it does exist, meaning that we have this uh, ecclesiastical economy of a visible church with a invisible church core. We have a believing core, but there's a broad representation of the visible church. If we can see this establishment that's seen in the Old Testament, mirrored in the two, in the new, rather, we can begin to build some confidence that, again, this practice, this, this, this mirroring of the, this continuity of the old and the new, Uh, is present. So thanks so much for listening. This has been Jack with The Chorus and the Chaos. Until next time.